Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, uh, my name is Troy Hall, so I'm your host on New Books of the American West, a channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Ellen Baumler. She was the interpretive historian at the Montana Historical Society from 1992 until her retirement in 2018. She's the author or editor of numerous books, including Girl from the Gulches, The Story of Mary Ronan, and Dark Spaces, Montana's Historic Penitentiary at Deer Lodge. Bobler won Montana's uh, Governor's Award for the Humanities and the Peter Yeagan Jr. Award for the Montana Association of Museums for Excellence in Excellence and Distinction in Fostering the Advancement of Montana's Museums. Today we're discussing her new book, The Life of the Afterlife in the Big Sky State, The History of Montana's Cemeteries, published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2021. The Life of the Afterlife in the Big Sky State is a groundbreaking history of death in Montana. It offers a unique, reflective, and sensitive perspective on the evolution of customs and burial grounds. Beginning with Montana's first known burial site, uh, Alabama considers the archaeological records of many interments in rock ledges, under cairns, in trees, and on open-air scaffolds. Contact with Europeans at the trading post and missions brought new burial practices, later crude boot hills, and pioneer graveyards evolved into orderly cemeteries. Planned cemeteries became the hallmark of civilization and a measure of an educated community. Baumler explores this history, yet untold, about Montana. She traces the pathway from primitive beginnings to park-like, architecturally planned burial grounds where people could recreate, educate their children, and honor the dead. Life of the Afterlife is not a comprehensive listing of the many hundreds of cemeteries across Montana. Rather, it discusses cultural identity, evidence through burial practices, changing methods of internments and why those came about, and the evolution of cemeteries as the last great necessity in organized communities. Through examples and anecdotes, uh, the book examines how we remember those who have passed on. Ellen, thanks for speaking with me today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. All right. So first things first, uh, how did you come to write this book? Well, it really was uh, kind of a a long process. Um, As the interpretive historian at the Montana Historical Society, uh, for 26 years, I wrote and researched interpretive plaques for the National Register of Historic Places. Uh, I probably did about 1,600 of those all across the state. And so I probably know more trivia than anybody does. But um, in the process of that, I also authored a number of National Register nominations, and probably half a dozen of them were on cemeteries. And so I, you know, I researched um, the Salish burial ground at St. Mary's Mission in the Bitterroot. I researched and um, the uh, the Jewish cemetery in Helena, the home of peace, the Pioneer Cemetery there too, uh, which is uh, Benton Avenue Cemetery. And then, sort of as the crowning of all of it, I uh, researched the uh, Conrad Cemetery in Kalispell. And those are all different types of cemeteries, so the research was all very different. And as you know, I I did that work. I realized that Montana really had a story to tell. And nobody had had told it. And so I um, 
decided that as I was retiring, I decided that that would be my project. And so uh, really years and years of research sort of all came together in this book. Cool. Thank you for that. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by people, how people find their projects. You know, when it's a dissertation, yeah, you're either told to do it or whatever it is, but it's always interesting how bigger projects emerge from kind of stuff you've been working on previously. Well, that's right, you know, and and, and things do evolve from that. And, you know, I've done a lot of other types of, of articles and things, and but pieces of all of those sort of came into play in this work. Well, so so to that point, right? So, um, so what did the research process look like for this book? Um, you know, and as I was reading it, you know, I could tell there's a mix of archaeological records, uh, public records, you know, whether they're death certificates or just tombstones, literal tombstones in a cemetery. So, I'm curious about how you research this, and then specifically those sources you use to kind of pull this whole thing together. Right. Um, well, I'm not an archaeologist or an anthropologist, but my husband is. And so I drew on him for the early parts of the book. And I, I felt like it was really important to include that early, uh, the, the earliest burials that we know of, you know, I mean, of course, we wanted to talk about the first one. And, um, and so that was archaeological. And he steered me to um, different uh, journals, professional journals, and that kind of thing. And as I was reading that stuff, it occurred to me that it's not the kind of thing that the public would ever look at. And so the public really doesn't know this story. And so um, I sort of tried to synthesize some of that information and include that in the early, uh, the early chapters of the book. It was really a lot of fun to do that. And then as I went on with the, with the other stuff that was a little bit more familiar to me to research, I really used everything in the historian's toolbox. You know, I used... Um, I used the Library of Congress Sanborn maps, which uh, map early communities. And sometimes you can find um, the cemeteries actually platted on there. Um, I used uh, newspapers for obituaries and information about people that I was was uh, going to include. I uh, went to a lot of a lot of cemeteries. I took a lot of pictures. And actually, you know, the hardest thing about writing a book, any book, for me is the pictures, because you have to have, you know, really good pictures. Um, and that was really kind of the hardest part. But um, there was a lot of visiting of cemeteries and the weather had to be right, you know, and all that kind of thing. So, you know, I used really everything in the historian's toolbox, census records, death records, death certificates, all those kinds of things that I use, would use daily in my, you know, in my regular job, I, I used in this book. Yeah. I like that. I think it was in, in the introduction, if I believe, um, um, about visiting cemeteries. And, and one thing that me and my fiance did, we were holed up in Conrad for four months, you know, just working, well, I was working remotely. She, she works in a hospital, but we would walk down to the cemetery there in Conrad. And, and it was amazing how much you can kind you can pull from just a singular tombstone, right? So the, the design kind of gives away roughly when it was made. There's, of course, you have dates of birth, dates of death, causes of death, you know, and of course, you know, funerals are for the living. So how people want to remember this person. And, and it, it was, it was cool to go to that, 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 that far back part of the cemetery where there were still stone tombstones from like 18, like 50s. I'm making the number, making the date up like 1856. Right. And it was just, it was always fascinating just what you could pull from just a physical tombstone itself. 
yeah, you know, cemeteries are full of stories like that. And, you know, sometimes they uh, give us impetus to uh, look a little bit further into a person. But, you know, just walking around, you can really learn a lot. Well, so so let's just jump into it here. Um, so as listeners are probably familiar with, we're going to work through the chapters. Um, and so let's just kind of start from the beginning. We'll get to the end here eventually. But can you talk about uh, so what, what, what did some of the earliest burial customs look like in what became Montana? Right. Um, well, the very first burial that we know about was the uh, the Anzic site. And, you know, that was really quite a find. In 1968, um, they were uh, sort of um, moving some dirt in uh, an area about a mile away from Wilsall in Park County. And the backhoe hit this cache Uh, that turned out to be the burial of a child. And for me, the interesting part, you know, you can read a lot of articles. It it made the news when that happened. And even today, you know, you still read articles about the DNA that they extracted and all of that. But the interesting thing for me was looking at the fact that this child was covered in red ochre. His bones uh, were saturated and he was buried with a complete toolkit of stone weapons, meaning that um, everything was there from the very beginning of production, from a a raw stone all the way to a tool that would be usable. And all the different stages of production were there, including weapons that um, actually had been used. And so it was very interesting to me that not only was the child covered in red ochre, all of the stu- the tools were also covered, and when they tested a couple of the uh, the finished tools, they found that they had in fact been used, and there was blood on a couple of them. Rabbit's blood was one thing, which is you know not too surprising. But the other thing, the other uh, type of blood was camel blood, and camels were extinct, you know, are extinct in Montana. But at the time of the Anzic burial, camels were still roaming Montana. And this burial is about 11,000 years old, give or take. And so um, to me, those customs, um, the burial with the toolkit like that, really shows that there was a belief in the afterlife because this child had everything he needed to learn about, you know, to survive. So looking at other burials then up through, you know, up through uh, the history of Montana, kind of, uh, there's not a lot of archaeology, but there is some. And um, uh, a lot of, of the burials are people that are buried with, buried with, you know, things that meant something to them, implements like that. Um, and as you go through time, uh, it becomes really interesting because, you um, Native Americans still use that red color to uh, wrap bodies in, whether it be a painted uh, skin of some kind or a a red blanket. You know, that's still a custom that uh, really carries through from that very, very ancient time. And it was brought probably across the land bridge. You know, uh, there may have been other ways that people came, but people probably did come from Siberia across that Bering Strait bridge, the, the land, the Bering land bridge to Alaska, and then they migrated down. And you know, this red idea is something that was brought with them because you find that in Europe, you find that everywhere. 
uh, in those very, very, very ancient burials. So to me, that was a really cool thing. Um, I mean, one thing for that red oak, right? And I can't remember if you explained it in the book or not, but so so it's clear that that, that red color has been used for a very long time with burial. Right. Mm-hmm. But what, what, what does it actually mean or represent? I think it repre- I think it represents lifeblood, probably, you know, um, and uh, we kind of think of, you know, we use black, you know, as symbolizing death. But it's interesting that um, red, I think, symbolized death. And I think it's because it was the lifeblood of a person. OK, so so let's move forward in time a little bit here. Um, so so what did burial practice practices look like? As the as the U.S. extended its boundaries westward, and this is kind of think about when here comes the United States as they conflict, sometimes literally with nations uh, around here in Montana. Yeah. Well, um, first of all, you know, trading posts sort of changed the way things, the way Native Americans uh, buried their dead a little bit. Native Americans typically uh, used open air burials. They would bury people in trees or um, on the ground covered with rocks, but not buried um, or on scaffolding. And, you know, one of the things that uh, I sort of went out on a limb and collected a few uh, burial photographs that had been published elsewhere, but they never had been published together. So to me, that's a really interesting thing to see actual scaffold burials, tree interments, and that kind of thing. At any rate, um, once uh, Europeans came through and established trading posts or military posts, it was possible to get wooden-made boxes. Native Americans adopted that um, that practice, and they would put the bundle, uh, the person with all their belongings bundled in a buffalo robe or some kind of skin, place that in a wooden coffin, and it would be the wooden coffin that would be placed in the tree or on the scaffolding, um, which I think is kind of interesting. And that's, you know, one of the one of the changes, one of the one of the big changes, I think, um, that occurred when uh, Europeans trading posts and and military posts came along. Um, Also, um, all of the military posts, trading posts had their own cemeteries. And Native Americans didn't bury their their dead or inter their dead in cemeteries. They were single burials, uh, except in special situations. And so the fact that the these trading posts had actually had cemeteries, you know, is, is kind of interesting. Most of those cemeteries are lost. We don't know where they were. The one that does remain is at Fort Cana, which was a late, a very late trading post that operated into the 1870s. And so that cemetery is intact, which I think is pretty is pretty cool. And there are descendants of the McDonald family that take care of that cemetery, which is why it survived. Um, so, so going back to the, the the burials in trees, or as you call a cemetery in the trees, um, well, what was the rationale for burying up high above ground? So it, um, you know, open air burials. The idea was that it left the spirit free to travel. Um, burial in the earth doesn't do that, it encloses the person. And so Native Americans believed that it was very important to free the spirit, to let the, the spirit be free. And even today, you know, um, in very remote places, there are still those kinds of, of interments. Okay, th- th- thank you for that. 
Um, yeah. Now, so like like you said, as trading posts uh, get established, as the military uh, you know sets up forts uh, throughout Montana itself, mm-hmm. um, you know what, what do these barrel practices look like on what we just kind of call the frontier? Um, and and kind of as a follow on question, right? What happened when some of the more informal practices started to uh, intersected with you know actual urban development? Yeah, well, you know, most early settlements in Montana and elsewhere in the West um, had haphazard cemeteries, and we call them boot hills because usually they were, not always, but usually they were on higher ground if there was a higher ground in the community. And uh, it was these were places that were violent places. That was true of Montana and other places in the West, and people died very suddenly sometimes, not only of... Uh, um, diphtheria or uh, uh, smallpox or whatever, but they also died violently. And so to die with your boots on, you know, that's why it's called Boot Hill, because a lot of people did die quickly uh, with their boots on. So Boot Hills, you know, became, uh, you know, just sort of something that every community had, very early community had. And um, usually they were, as I say, they were usually on higher ground, but as the community then began to grow, if it, if it did grow, uh, urban development would encroach and it would be necessary to stop burying people in that place and move out of town to a, a larger you know, type of burial ground. And so those boot hills oftentimes just became, became forgotten. Um, cemeteries didn't usually have marked graves early on because it was very difficult to transport tombstones. Imagine how heavy a tombstone is and how much that would cost by ox team, you know. Plus, you had to mail order tombstones. There were no tombstone makers in Montana until the late 1870s. So you have these um, uh, graves that are unmarked. Maybe they're marked by a forked stick or maybe by a stone, you know, three rocks in a triangle or something like that. But, But generally, those things fade away or roll away. And the cemetery then just becomes unknown. And so sometimes in uh, urban settings, you know, when people are road crews are digging roads or they're digging foundations for a house or something, you come across a burial like that. And people wonder why that is. Well, you know, that's because that's where the uh, cemetery uh the original cemetery was. It's true in Missoula, which is kind of interesting. Missoula uh, had a very early cemetery from the mid-1860s that was in the lower Rattlesnake area. If you come along going west on the interstate there and get off at the university exit on the right-hand side, that's where the lower Rattlesnake area is. And um, that was platted into urban uh for, for uh, residential use in um, about 1885 or so. And the cemetery was discontinued about 1881 when the city cemetery opened. But a lot of those burials, again, you know, they were unmarked. And so the um, neighborhood was just platted right over the graves. And I know people who told me that they have pieces of wooden coffins in their basements in their basement walls, you know, and they have to be pretty careful how dig they deep their gardens and that kind of thing, because you do sometimes hit bones or, or burials or wooden pieces of coffins. Um, in 1972, two burials were discovered when a guy was putting a porch on the back of his house 
And uh, those bones were uh, taken to the coroner. You know, they decided they were historic. So the bones were given to the University of Montana uh, for study. And generations of students studied those bones. And it wasn't until fairly recently that a student decided to um, use that as a project, use those bones as a project. And she determined that this person may have died of tuberculosis because the bones were very porous. We knew it was a, she knew it was a woman. Uh, and so in checking, this is really important, you know, to check historic records because in looking at the historic records, which nobody else had thought to do, um, uh, she knew that the landowner was Cyrus McCork. And in looking at obituaries, she found the sister of Cyrus McCork, who died in 1872, visiting her brother, and she died of tuberculosis. So it's you know, pretty clear that this was probably um, Henrietta, um, Henrietta McCork Harrison. So, you know, it takes a lot of work to, to use all of those tools, but it, sometimes it really pays off. No, th- thanks for that. And I, and I had a couple, like, follow-up questions. Um, and, and a lot of this is that, like, the, just the, your section on boot hills, right? Is so you know I I have seen boot hills everywhere. I just never knew what they were called, right? Or 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 maybe a little bit more, maybe not as old version of boot boot hills. And I'm always thinking when I'm driving down to Showdown, uh, you know, from Great Falls down to White Sulphur Springs, and there are I think in Monarch and in Nyhart cemeteries kind of going up going up the hill off the highway. And so for me, I'm wondering what was the rationale for burying them uphill. Um, I don't know why you don't bury them underground. You don't want to bury them underground in New Orleans, but it doesn't make sense to me why you bury them up up uphill, kind of overlooking, as it were, the town. Well, I think you know. First of all, like you say, overlooking, you know, for the panoramic view, you know, giving the dead something to look at. But I think practically because of drainage issues, um, if you bury uh, and and not every like I say, you know, not every community has uh, an area that's above ground like that. But it was the common place to to bury them just because the drainage was better. The view was better. Everybody could see where the cemetery was, you know, and it was true of uh, Bannock. Uh, Bannock's um, boot hill is way, way up, 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 up on top of almost on top of a mountain. And it only lasted until about 1880 because it was very hard to get a coffin up there by by wagon, you know, and so they uh, they. founded another cemetery that was easier to get to. But, you know, typically if there is an area that is above ground like that, higher up, that's why they would uh, they would choose that area. Now, you know, there's always, I mean, how to put this, it's, it always feels like that there is a, especially for this time period, both a logical reason, right? People are doing this for a reason, but it always seems like there's lots of, like an environmental reason is the one that's undergirding a lot of the decisions making, um, like drainage and, and things of that nature as well. Um, also one that makes me wonder too, is like, well, they look at that and go, well, we're not going to build up there with buildings. So, so that's land we can, we can afford to, to use yeah, for. Yeah, until know, later uh, on when they decide know. like in Helena, it was up on the, the ridge top. And, uh, and it lasted about 10 years. There was quite a few people buried up there. And then City Fathers decided when Helena became the capital in 1875, they decided they wanted to build the first graded school. It was broken down into rooms for the different grades. And they wanted uh, to show it off. So they wanted to build it on the highest point so everybody would see it right on top of the cemetery. And uh, yeah, so 
we have a new central school. It's a third central school that has been in that location. And uh, when they when they built this huge new school, I'm sure they discovered a few things that they don't want to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) I can only imagine. Um, Okay. So, um, so next, right. So, so boot hills, they, they, they slowly over time turn into kind of the cemeteries that we know today. Right. Or, or, that, that, that's where the development goes. So, so how and why did park-like cemeteries come to be in Montana? So, um, a good example is Butte because Butte had had a very early planned cemetery. And planned cemeteries mean you know that the, the cemetery is actually laid out in sections with driveways and that kind of thing and landscaping. In Butte. Um, Urban cemeteries, people didn't stay buried because of the ground dis- disturbance. And so they had to, actually of necessity, move the cemetery out of town. But it was a really bleak landscape with no trees, nothing would grow there. And so they they platted out this cemetery with, with driveways in that, but they couldn't landscape because nothing would grow in Butte in the 19th century. And uh, so they substituted art, really, uh, artful tombstones, you know, um, and Butte became one of the most beautiful cemeteries because later it could be landscaped uh, when things began to grow again. And there's, a be- there's beautiful art in that cemetery. So sometimes it was a necessity and sometimes it was because um, there really was no place to recreate in urban places. They didn't really uh, plan parks in Western, uh, Western towns. And so there, there was really no place for people to go to picnic and that kind of thing. And cemeteries, grand cemeteries, beautiful cemeteries sprang up because it gave people a place where they could go and recreate with their families. I mean, that sounds weird, but that's one of the purposes of these park-like cemeteries, beautifully landscaped cemeteries. People could go there. They could take their children there. Um, children in the 19th century were um, familiar with death. You know, one in, I think, three and five children didn't get to be the age of three. And so, you know, a lot of children died. A lot of children had family members who had died. And so... Uh, mothers took their kids to the cemetery so they wouldn't be afraid of death. And, you know, it was a place where the dead could take their rest, but the uh, public could take its leisure. And our grand cemeteries, most communities have a, a beautifully landscaped cemetery, and, and that's what they were used for, aside from burying people. <laughs> now, as I was reading that part of your book, it, it, it reminded me, um, this was, was I think nine something like that, seven, I forget what it was, but you know, went to the Père Lachaise Cemetery in, in Paris. And, and, and the only reason I went there is because my friend demanded I take a picture of Jim Morrison's t- gravesite. Oh yeah, that's a great cemetery. Yeah, you go see Oscar Wilde and it's got, you know, lipstick kisses on it. And then of course you eat it pee off and, and all that kind of stuff. But um, it, it was the first time that I had set foot in a cemetery. And it's not that like I was necessarily adverse to them right but the first time i set foot in a cemetery and i was like this is a beautiful place i don't want to leave you know and so it, it, it was well for me once i kind of had that epiphany you know now i kind of look for these these places to at least go check out and visit and stuff and so is, is the one in butte is it still uh there 
Oh, it's a beautiful cemetery. Yeah, it's beautifully landscaped now and has just incredible, incredibly artful tombstones and sculptures and things like that. And, you know, one other reason that this this kind of evolved in the United States is because urban areas became really, really crowded. And um, especially in New York, the urban cemeteries became so crowded that they just couldn't bury anyone there anymore. And when it rained, you know, there was bone gumbo, you know, the bones would float to the, the top. And uh, people believed uh, that lots of people died of, you know, epidemics and that kind of thing. And it became a fear of um, contagion. And so, you know, that's another reason why cemeteries moved out of town into bigger spaces um, and provided a place for people to go. Could you also talk a bit about the, the Conrad Cemetery up in Kalispell? That's definitely on my, my to-do list because the last time we were there, we went to the Conrad Mansion, and and so now 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 I saw this. I was like, well, that's the next thing I'm doing next time I'm back up in the Flathead. You have to go there because it is a really beautiful cemetery, and the story of the founding of it, you know, it's a really lovely story where um, Charles Conrad was a diabetic, and he knew that he was nearing the end of his life, and he had never talked about his burial wishes to his to his wife. And so they took a last horseback ride uh, to this area and um, took their horses out onto this this promontory promontory overlooking the Stillwater River. And Charles told his wife, Alicia, you know, this is where I want to be buried. And I want to establish a cemetery here that'll be for everyone, regardless of um, regardless of their status, community status, regardless of their ethnicity. I want it to be a place where everybody is welcome. And so when Charles died, then uh, Alicia searched across the United States for an architect to design it. And she finally found this architect and uh, the cemetery was designed in 1903 by Arthur Hobart, who was from Minnesota. And he was a professional landscaper horticulturist and this cemetery really is the prototype of Montana's park-like cemeteries because it has certain features. He designed it with these beautiful looping driveways that uh, took into account the landscape. They didn't change the, the formations of the land at all. They followed the contours of the, of the hillside, really, and they, um, they used the existing um, trees and shrubs and things and added to them, added landscaping to them, but they were very careful to add appropriate things. And so using the natural land um, and also providing these great sweeps of open space where there are flat tombstones, you can't even see them. When you look at the cemetery, there's a beautiful sweep of um, green grass and it's full of, of flat markers, but you can't see them. And so it was really the first cemetery to utilize that, uh, that those thoughts of uh, creating big sweeps, natural landscape, and it was the first cemetery that had perpetual care. And so um, that is really Montana's prototype for the park-like cemetery. But the best feature of that cemetery is that uh, where that promontory is, is where the Conrad Mausoleum was built. And um, in the back of that, the hillside going down to the Stillwater River, Alicia had stone steps cut into the hillside. And those are called the fairy steps. And it's really worth visiting 
And if you try to count them, you'll never get the same number twice. And it's true. <laughs> and I think it's because you're so exhausted climbing up there, you lose count and you count differently going down. But, uh, but it's really a wonderful, wonderful place to visit. I, I recommend everybody take a look at that cemetery. You know, it's interesting as you're explaining how the architect um, designed, you know, the, the Conrad Cemetery. Is that, is that what it's called, the Conrad Cemetery? Yeah, the, the, yeah, the C.E. Conrad Memorial Cemetery. Okay. And they say it's the best last place. <laughs> the best last place. <laughs> That's going to be on a, someone, someone's going to have to use some marketing on that one. Uh, I know. <laughs> it's just, um, uh, but, 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 but right, like so, and I think it's true of the time period, right, that that's pretty keeping with, you know, landscape design and architecture, whether it's an actual, a park, as you normally think of more cemetery themselves, but it's interesting, right? How, how they're, they're using the landscape to create this beautiful place that they envision. So, so they're in Kalispell, they have more to work with in Butte, but even the one in Butte, I, I, I'm still, I'd love to see if there's, I'm sure there's photos out there somewhere of, you have a barren landscape, you can't plant the green stuff to make it pretty. So you bring in these beautiful ornate pieces of, of art as tombstones to kind of take the place of what you might think of it as, as the green and stuff like that. And so it's just interesting how to have, how folks do that. Um, to it create is that, interesting. This final resting and, place. And, you know, the other thing about that Butte cemetery is that the land is perfectly flat. There's no hillsides, you know, but, but there are the looping driveways and now there is landscaping uh, before, you know, there wasn't, it was just, it was just dirt basically. And so, yeah, it is wonderful to see how it kind of evolved. And some cemeteries did evolve that way. Uh, the beautiful cemetery, Sunset Hills in Bozeman, started out just as a small pioneer type cemetery and, and was added onto much later, like 1920 or so. And it was, you know, these beautiful looping uh, driveways and, and landscaping was added later after the Conrad prototype, you know. And so it is beautiful. It's a beautiful cemetery today and has some beautiful cemetery art too. Um, so, so another thing too that, that you, you, you dedicate some time to here is just kind of the wide array of types of cemeteries throughout the state of Montana. And, and there's kind of two, um, you listed many, but I just kind of, if you could kind of speak to two of them. Uh, first off is actually either Chinese or Chinese sections of cemeteries. And I'm really thinking of Mark Johnson and his book coming out here in a few months that I'd like for folks to hear about. But then also the institutional cemeteries, so like Deer Lodge and stuff like that. If you can kind of talk about um, those types of cemeteries versus these big ornate ones that were um, that you just uh, talked about. Right. Um, well, Mount uh, Mariah Cemetery in Butte that we were just talking about has a substantial Chinese section. And um, it's, it's unusual because it includes the funerary burner that is characteristic of Chinese cemeteries because they typically uh, burn the person's possessions, uh, which is part of the funeral ritual. Um, I don't think that there's any other such uh, structure left in Montana, although there, there was one in Helena. It doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but the cemetery is... Uh, on the outskirts at, at the back of Mount Moriah, and it's probably in the ugliest part of the cemetery. Um, and that's kind of typical of Chinese sections. In Helena, the Chinese section probably includes about 200 burials, uh, but there are no tombstones except for maybe half a dozen. And uh, it's outside the tended grounds of the cemetery proper, uh, which is 
oftentimes the way ethnic cemeteries were done. Um, interestingly enough, in Deer Lodge, there is a row of Japanese tombstones that tell you that there was a Japanese community. Uh, many, many Japanese came to Montana to work on the railroad after the Chinese Exclusion Act prohibited Chinese laborers from coming in. The Great Northern Railway and the Milwaukee Road and refurbishing the lines was done by Japanese. So there is that whole row of Japanese tombstones in Deer Lodge. There's a whole section in the Missoula City Cemetery of about 500 plots that are Japanese that were added later. Um, They were reinterred there from other places, uh, having died working on the railroad. Um, which is kind of interesting. We have Jewish sections. We have Jewish cemeteries, individual cemeteries. Uh, There are half a dozen of those uh, scattered around Montana. Um, And the institutional cemeteries, oftentimes larger cemeteries will have sections that are devoted to institutions. But um, poor farms usually had their own cemeteries. Uh, There was one of those in the Rattlesnake area uh, in Missoula, again, you know, where that first cemetery was that we talked about, that early one. There was another cemetery that went with Poor Farm that's now um, the grounds of a school, and um, that's caused some problems too with people. Um, but uh, the, uh, the Deer Lodge Prison also has, actually that was the very first institution to set aside a section or a, a separate uh, cemetery, and that is in the in the Deer Lodge Cemetery, Hillcrest Cemetery proper, one end of it, the west end of it, is devoted just to inmates uh, from Montana State uh, Prison. And that was platted in uh, eight, 1870. It was the first institutional cemetery that was set aside. Um, Warm Springs has a huge, huge cemetery that includes hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of burials, and it's all overgrown. It's really sad. Um, The only markers are marking the section numbers, and those are all peeled, and the wood is kind of rotting out. Uh, It's a very, very sad place, really, Um, and it's a shame that it has been neglected the way it has. There's a section in uh, Twin Bridges for the the, um, Montana State Children's Home, and there is a marker graves are unmarked, but there is a marker there that uh, lists the names of the children that are buried there. And the epitaph is God's orphans now, which to me is, is really poignant. So we have a lot of institutional cemeteries and sections in larger cemeteries for institutions. All right. So we've been talking about, well, I guess in a sense, we've been talking about how the living bury the dead, right? Because the dead can't bury themselves. Um, but but actually, I love your last couple chapters. It really gets into kind of the, the, the not just burial practices, but the funeral and the ritual involved. Um, and so kind of, the question I'm asking is both how and why, or maybe why and how, uh, do Montana's commemorate the dead? And uh, because I live in Great Falls, I was if you could talk about C.M. Russell's, Charlie Russell's uh, funeral, and then the one that you everyone has to know about is uh, Shep up in uh, uh, oh, yeah. Fort Bend. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think Montanans, we've had a lot of disasters here. 
And we do uh, commemorate those disasters. Um, probably the most powerful and most poignant uh, memorial is the Speculator Mine disaster, uh, which reproduces the letters that were scrawled by people, be- by the miners before the oxygen ran out and they asphyxiated. Um, there's a list of, of people who died building the Fort Peck Dam. There are crosses on the hillside uh, at the Man Gulch, where the Man Gulch fire was in 1949, crosses mark where each person fell. Um, and we have this wonderful white marker program, too, you know, that commemorates uh, people who have been lost in motor vehicle accidents. I think it's unusual and it's unique across the country. You'll see those white mark- markers everywhere. everywhere. Uh, and we like to memorialize uh, animals, too. <laughs> my favorite one, really my favorite one, is the, um, this, the uh, tombstone for Old Pitt who was a circus elephant that was hit by lightning in Dillon and is buried in the parking lot of the rodeo, uh, rodeo grounds. But um, also, you know, Auditor was a dog that lived by the Berkeley pit for years and years and years. And there's a memorial to him. And of course, Shep is the most famous one. Uh, there's a wonderful, a wonderful bronze of Shep, Uh, along the banks of the uh, river up at Fort Benton. And there's a whole story about that, too. You know, the Boy Scouts gave Shep a fantastic funeral and uh, played taps and and everything. And it was really quite a thing. And and people, I think, do appreciate uh, Shep and they appreciate that beautiful statue that's there. Uh, Everyone who comes to Fort Benton learns about Shep. what else did you ask me about? Um, you asked me about something else too, uh, other kinds of memorials. Oh, well, epitaphs is another way that we uh, remember people who have died. And, you know, it's really more for the living than it is for the dead. Uh, and it is one way that we can walk around cemeteries and learn a little bit about different people. Uh, I think one of my favorite ones is the epitaph for Jack Taylor, who was an African-American guy lived for a long, long time in uh, Virginia City. And his epitaph says, as long as the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest shall not cease, which really, you know, is the mark of a person who worked hard all of his life. And I, I really appreciate that um, that particular epitaph. Um, there are beautiful little uh, children's chair tombstones that uh, are probably the most poignant of all the tombstones that we have in Montana. And, and there are examples in Butte and Helena and Bozeman and Deer Lodge. And it's a, it's a little child's chair with uh, shoes tucked underneath and um, drapery or clothing draped over the back. You know, it's, those, those little tombstones are just so, so precious and so poignant. Uh, the one in Benton Avenue Cemetery in Helena, the epitaph on it is how we miss them. I mean, that just says volumes, you know, and it's, and it's really very, very sad. So, yeah, we have a lot of symbols and things that people use on tombstones. Um, there are fraternal emblems. Uh, there are symbols like angels and doves and lambs and urns and, all of those different things, um, and then fraternal, fraternal 
emblems like in the interlocked rings of the odd fellows and the square and compass of the masons and that kind of thing. And, you know, again, you know, it's really interesting to walk around and, and see what those are. And it just tells you a little bit about the person. And that goes back to how, how much you can learn from a tombstone itself, right? Especially if you have one whose family really put put their life on it, whether it's, you know, the empty chair, um, the fraternal order uh, symbols and things like that. And so, so you know, it, they're fascinating things to read. Um, if For any listeners, if you've never done it before, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting way to spend an afternoon. It is. It really is. Oh, and C.M. Russell's funeral. You know, sometimes we did have these very elaborate funerals for uh, different um um, personalities. And C.M. Russell's was especially interesting, I think, because he asked to be um, in a horse-drawn hearse. And that hearse is uh, has glass sides. And it is now actually, I believe it's in, it's on display somewhere, uh, maybe at the uh, Russell Museum in Great Falls. Um, but as they were taking him to the cemetery, I think it's really interesting that school was called off for half a day so children could line the sidewalks and, you know, everyone came came out to um, just to say goodbye to this person who had meant a lot to the community and to everyone, really. And um, as they're, they're, the, the horses are taking the hearse to the cemetery, there was a burst of rain and there was a beautiful, beautiful rainbow and, you know, it had all the colors of Charlie Russell's palette. And it was just, you know, such a fitting thing and such a beautiful thing. And I think a lot of times those, those things happen. And um, it's wonderful that we have those stories recorded, too, you know, because they do mean something, I think. Well, we'll start to, to wrap this up. Um, so just a couple questions left here. Um, how can this book help readers better understand the American West? Well, I think, you know, that do people who visit do really like to go to, to cemeteries and people like to walk around. And it is, you know, a local cemetery is a community in a microcosm. It is everything that the community was. And um, if you want to learn the history of a place, that's where you should go, because that's where you can learn about the disasters that might have happened. Uh, Ten people that died in the same year, there's got to be something that happened, whether it was an epidemic or, or fire or, or what. Um, rich, poor, institutionalized or ethnic, you know, all of these people, um, each person has a story and each person's story is important. And every burial tells just a little bit about that person. And uh, what they tell is, you know, is pretty much equal among everyone who's buried there, but he has a little piece of something there. And so I think it is a place that you can um, research people sometimes, but you don't even have to do the research. You can just sort of soak up the atmosphere and um, learn a little bit about the person and keep the person alive in the history of the place. And that's the best way to do it. Well, thank you. Um, All right. So last one. What's next for you? Are you working on anything else, or was this the, or is this your your your, your opus? No, your, your... it's not my swan song. I got a very, <laughs> I got a very busy uh, summer ahead of me. I'm scheduled to do I don't know about 14 tours, community tours with big big tour groups. 
Um, I'm working on a book, 101 Places, with colleagues at the Montana Historical Society, taking my interpretive sign texts and expanding them. Um, I, um, I'm always working on ghost stories. I'm collecting them. Anybody who knows a ghost story can tell me. I'd love to hear them. I probably almost have enough for another book of those. Five of my books are very well-researched Montana ghost stories. You don't have to believe in ghosts, but... You know, sometimes you just can't explain things. And um, and it, it's really, it's a fun thing for me to do. So all those things. Also working with the Library of Congress, collecting stories of uh, Native American war veterans. And that's that's been interesting too. So I'm into a lot of different things. I'm glad, glad you brought up the ghost stories because uh, last October I, I went on a ghost tour here in town and and it was, I'd never I don't think I've I don't think I'd done one of those before. No, I did one in Memphis, um, but this was the first one I did here. And as always, I'm I'm like, yeah, okay, right, yeah, that that's what happened. But what I came to realize is that there were actually a lot of nuggets for really interesting historical stories, history, kind of embedded it. within the ghost story that I had trouble believing, you know what I mean? And so I'm sitting there like, I'm sitting there pulling out a pen of paper and sort of writing down a list. Of, All right, look at this, look at this, look at this, look at this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and um, so, so no, it, it was, the, the, I definitely, get, when I got done with it, I was like, okay, that was definitely worth my time. I very much appreciated yeah. the ghost story you stuff. Know, the, thing, so, the thing is, um, as a historian, it really gives me the opportunity to write about places that I would never get to write about. And uh, when there's some little thread, little thread of something there, you know, you can sort of make it into something bigger just by researching the place and telling the story of the places. And that's really what what it's about. And, and it's, it's it's not quite the same, but but at work, um, I, I don't know if you've heard or not, but there is some uh, UFO alien lore associated <laughs> oh, with yeah. the missile mission. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. And so I've heard a number of those stories and kind of the same thing, right? I was like, all right, well, yeah. let's take that that proposition seriously and let's see what I can come up with. And so that's mm-hmm. kind of a project I've started working on, um, which may be more of a technological problem than it is green men in spacesuits coming down on flying saucers. But it, it'll be an interesting thing. And it just kind of what you said there kind of jogged my memory on that one. But, but OK, well, this was a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.